Welcome everyone to the sixth episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozella here with Nick Tartaglia. Um, Nick, we've got, um, it's a pretty long interview, but there is so much value in this conversation right now that we just had with our, our, our guests. Uh, so what do you think, what, 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 can we, what, what can we expect here? What's the theme? So it's, we have to understand guys, we're millennials. Okay. So the whole perspective of what we decided to do with this podcast is so people can understand that there needs to be a new shift in how we consume data, how we perceive data and how we amplify that data for our future and our wealth. This guy, he's just like us. He's a millennial, but he, unlike me and uh, Dan, he started the game a lot earlier than both of us. So he's got a lot more years of experience under a belt and he's met some interesting people. So this is, this is uh, going to be a clash of discussion about what we as millennials are trying to do, what our perceptions are of the market and what we need to do overall. You know, it's just a conversation is the greatest thing is the greatest thing to developing a, a concrete, I would say strategy because you know, you, you get to see what other people are starting to think. Right. And I think you also get to see sort of his way of thinking. And that's why sure. our, our, our episode today is really age doesn't matter. No. Um, you could start investing at any as age. As soon as you start making money. Yeah. As soon as you've got like that first, you know, little, little pocket change in that piggy bank, you can start investing. Um, and I think that's what's really interesting about our, our, our guest here. Um, we went a little bit out of sort of the, the geographical location that we're normally accustomed to. Um, he's based out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, his name is Chris Stanford. He's 24 years old and he's already managing a portfolio, uh, up well above near the six figure range. Um, so I, guys, I hope you enjoy this one. It's a really interesting, uh, very juicy, let's call it. Cause that's what it was. I mean, there was so much stuff that we could have talked about. Um, we're probably going to have him on again. Um, because the wealth of knowledge that he brings and the expertise that he has um, is almost second to none. So without further ado, guys, um, this is Age Doesn't Matter with Chris Stanford. Enjoy. All right. Well, interesting episode coming up here, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've got somebody who is... The same age as us, actually. Um, he's a self-funded investment portfolio manager with over a decade of market experience. Um, and he's actually turned down several offers to work for major investment firms. Um, so rather than working for another firm, uh, this individual decided to risk everything and manage his own portfolio. And in the midst of a financial crisis, which was about you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, he watched people lose their entire savings because of that. And at that point, he was determined to avoid the same fate. So he took it upon himself to study finance at the ripe age of 12 and started making his own investments. And he learned through his experience how to navigate the financial world through intelligent choices and during a time of absolute financial panic. And up to this day, he started proactively reading you know, college textbooks, investing in himself, I think this guy is a purebred entrepreneur um, and eventually got mentored by somebody who is very well known on Wall Street, which we're going to talk about. Um, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, welcome to the New Gen Mindset podcast, 
Chris Stanford. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks for the intro, Dan. <laughs> I mean, that is that is impressive. And I feel like, you know, when Nick and I started this podcast, man, like we just we were looking for people like this. And yeah. maybe you could just talk about like up to, to this date and what you've seen. Like just tell us how you got to this point right now, Chris. Okay. Uh yeah, thanks for the intro, guys. Thanks for having me on. And basically, you know, starting off, um, you know, I have great parents that have Basically, you know, they've done a really good job of raising me and my three brothers. Um, you know, I'm kind of in the middle of, of the three, so I'm a little bit younger than, than uh, my other two older brothers. But, yeah, they did a really good job of raising us. And my dad you know, started a cleaning company, um, so they're cleaning, you know, big office spaces. And he did pretty well as an entrepreneur. So I think – He would have done well now. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he, he always had this, like, really interesting perspective about – um, trying to find something that you could be the best at, trying to find something that, you know, you could do, um, you know, whatever it is, try to do it in an entrepreneurial way where you can kind of control your own destiny. And, um, you know, I think he kind of always wanted us to go down that route in some way, shape or form, whether it was after working for somebody or just starting off that way. Um, either way, there was just that concept of starting something and being self-sufficient. So, um, that was kind of the initial spark of, I think, any entrepreneurial mindset, because I do view what I, what I do is more entrepreneurial than anything else. Um, but essentially, it started off, like you said, in 2008, I saw well, markets collapse. I was only 12 years old, but everybody was panicking. You know, all the adults in the room, the teachers, the you know, friends, parents, and uh, I didn't really see and my parents like really panicking, but we had conversations about what was going on. And um, I had always thought that my dad was like really brilliant businessman and he is a really brilliant bus businessman. But when it came to the stock market questions, like I had to kind of um, figure a lot of it out on my own. Cause I realized that there was just a lack of knowledge there, not just in my own household, but in other households around the world. Um, so then that was the point where I was like, okay, let me start to look into some of these problems a little bit and understand you know, what's going on more than just, hey, it's a mortgage crisis. Like, let's understand what is the stock market? How does it work? How does it function? Uh, yeah. you, know, you know, you start to uncover terms like mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations and all this stuff. And it's like... The famous acronyms. Yeah. So I started to get into all those like little pieces and looking at what's going on, understanding like, wow, there's this huge thing that just happened. And, you know, there's this great opportunity and everybody's buying stocks that has, real, you know, you saw Warren Buffett and... Uh, Warren Buffett was buying debt of companies while at the same time buying you know, some of their equity, getting the convertible notes. So you saw people like that making really genius plays. And then you saw you know, lots of other portfolio managers that had really great strategies that were capitalizing on it. Um, so I had bought some stocks. I think my first few stocks were like Netflix. Um, I bought BP because it was the oil spill. And I don't think BP did all that well, but it did pretty well at first. Um, Netflix did really well over time. I sold it a little bit way too soon um because it was kind of just starting to it was a new trend yeah it was it was just starting to kind of get into their online business model that was really where their stock started to take off um so there you know there's a huge huge surge in netflix after i had gotten in it gotten out of it um best buy was one of those things as well i just saw that best buy was cheap i was you know kid had always gone there to buy video games whatever so i thought that that was something that was interesting but um, sir, I'll just try to make this as 
as short as possible so we can switch to a different topic. <laughs> I um, have seen this fundamental approach looking at companies based on how much money they're making rather than just looking at the stock and how the stock's moving, but looking at you know, how much money they're making, how much you expect that they're going to make. Um, Nick, you talked about sort of long-term investing, and that's kind of very similar to my start and where I had, I looked at, so I read the intelligent investor, studied Warren Buffett, you know, people like that. Um, and I had seen some really good initial success with just basic fundamental analysis. So that kind of got me into investing as a whole. Um, I realized the biggest problem was that I had this great strategy, but really no money. I was a broke kid. You know, um, cash, flow. cash flow becomes an issue out there. Yeah. So my, my brilliant plan was to go to school. Like I emptied out my backpacks, filled it with donuts and candy that I got from Walmart or, you know, I bought, I bought like a whole bunch of stuff for like five bucks and just filled up my backpack, went into school, um, realized that in the morning kids do not have access to, you know, they don't have access to any snacks or anything until lunchtime. Right. So there's that morning opportunity where I can sell candy for any price because I'm the only place that they have to go. Um, so I'd sell like something that would be like 20 cents for maybe two, $3. And I'd leave every single every single day, but like every other day with a couple hundred dollars. And that was my seed capital for investing. So I did that all the way from middle school until pretty much I graduated high school. Um, so that was, that was how I initially got money to even invest and just piled that into an account. And that had just kind of slowly, slowly grew. And eventually, you know, by the time I was actually 18, I had six figures that I was managing. Damn, good for you, bro. So it was an interesting, uh, I would say that most of, most of it was just simple compounding, like just yeah. more well, it, the last 10, the last 10 years was a good period of time to just allow that compounding power to just do all the work for you. Yep. Just buy at good opportunities, feed good trends, good companies that are still focused on growth. And honestly, the last 10 years, if you played it, you could have gotten a nice return. Exactly. And so this was, so this was kind of, um, what, from 2008 to like 2014, right? So kind of, and in between there, I, I did a couple different things like traded penny stocks for a couple of years, did not have really any success at that. That's, that's a hard one. That's also how it starts. I think yeah. Yeah. prices are low, right? You <laughs> yeah. just jump Look, into that. Our, our start, our start was technically penny stocks, but the marijuana industry. Yeah. That was, that was my initial start in the sector and turn the world of investing was okay, let's get into marijuana. It's a new trend. It's all penny stocks, but there's a future outlook for it. And all the companies, well, they're pre-revenue, so it's all speculation. So it's who's going to eat up market share before they actually start selling anything. Right. Yeah. And so I went through, you know, a couple of years of that um, towards like when I just started to graduate high school. And then right around that time, as I was kind of doing a little bit more, I'm still doing some long-term investing, but I really started to shift into trading. Um, and I'd wasted, it felt like I wasted a couple of years because it was just so back and forth. And then that was the point when I really started to meet mentors. And we talked about Acton, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But really my first mentor, my first serious mentor was a guy locally um, who lived in my neighborhood. He was this guy named Chris Caden. And he worked at Federated. And Federated's like their uh, local investment bank here in Pittsburgh. So he's, he's managing um, some type of portfolio for Federated. And I knew that him and his wife both worked there. And he was managing somewhere over a billion dollars for 
some sort of fund under Federated. I didn't know enough about it at that time to really. How, how long? How long ago was this? So this was in 2014, right around okay. the time I graduated high school. Nice. Um, so I met basically. I knew that he lived in my neighborhood and that he was, you know, a stock market investor. Um, he had this really cool car that I admired. He had this like blue Lamborghini, and I was like, <laughs> I want to be like that guy. So I went and I approached him. I said, Hey, I, I'd really love to. It was just a local meetup for people that have like cool cars, and they all get together and like cars and coffee. You guys probably have one. Of, we definitely, uh, we definitely have a few of those up in Montreal for sure. Yeah, but so I went um, a couple of times with the intention of, because my, my brothers and stuff, they're really into cars and my dad's really into cars. So they went to these meetups all the time and um, they had met him a few different times, but you know, they talked about him and what he did. And I realized that this guy is somebody I could learn from. So I went with the intention of meeting this person. Um, and eventually, one, one of these times I met him and just told him, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Mark's son and you know these are my, these are my uh my brothers that you talk to and I'm, I'm interested in stocks and I, I know you're a stock market investor. I'd love to come to your office and meet with you. And he said, great, uh, you know, come by and we can, we can, uh, you know, grab lunch, whatever, and chat for a little bit. So one day he actually invited me to his office, allowed me to come in and talk to him. And I, you know, I told him, here's what I want to do. Here's what I'm trying to do. He gave me a lot of advice, you know, go to school, do this. Anybody you talk to in the business is going to tell you to go to school. Um, if, at least if they think you want to manage money for other people, because he's right, you know, you're not going to get um, sophisticated yeah. investors to invest in you unless you've gone to school, or, you know, some Ivy League school or something like that. So that was, that was a piece of his advice, but he told me all kind of other things like, you know, get out of the penny stock and look at you know, these other opportunities. And um, here are some other things that you can do. And so we just kind of walked through like his process, what he does, you know, how he got to that point. And um, he later on went to go work, at his own fund that he started and they managed the, um, I'm sure you know, like Heinz Ketchup. Of course. They've been around for a while. They're, you know, they've generated massive amounts of wealth. So they have over a billion dollars and, um, the stock's not getting a lot of love right now, but it's no, definitely, it's part of, it's part of Berkshire's positioning. Yeah. So the fam the family though is, um, they they live here in Pittsburgh. They're super wealthy. Um, they've got billions of dollars. The wife, one of the, uh, heirs of the Heinz, because obviously they've been around for like a hundred years or whatever, so it's not it's not a new company. But the the daughter who inherit one of the daughters who inherited it, she's married to like John Kerry or whatever. Um, so he so but he manages part of their uh, part of their wealth as a family office. Okay. Um, so he has kind of shifted from from working there to his own fund, and so it's been interesting to see um, you know his growth and. That was one of the people that I looked up to early on, and then there was Ackman. Ackman was really the big one because uh, I had known about Ackman and followed him. Just just to give uh, our listeners just a quick little intro on who Bill Ackman is, um, Perishing Square, right? Capital, uh, yeah, founder, uh, investment manager, one of the most well-known investment hedge funds on Wall Street. Um, He's been a little, there's been a lot of controversy recently with the trade that he did. Um, I looked at that as like, whoa, like that's something that's really cool. So um, yeah, let's, let's talk about this. Cause it's like Bill Ackman is definitely a mentor that I think many people would love to have. So maybe just talk about that. That's really cool. So one of the world's few billionaires. So, yeah. so kind of like, just to, just to be very transparent about it. Um, Bill Ackman is not somebody I've worked with for months or years. You know, I had for sure really one big opportunity to sit down and talk with him. Um, there's this place in New York, I believe it's called Carmine Steakhouse. I can't 
remember exactly what the name of it, but essentially it's this high end steak restaurant um, that, you know, I was able to get my buddy Maj, by the way, who is um, also a fund manager at Geo. He, he has this group called Geo Investing. They do like all sorts of very similar to what I do, research and investment. Um, mainly actually just research. They don't really do the courses and stuff like that. So he does research, but he was in that movie called The China Hustle. I don't know if you guys saw that. It's like a documentary. Yeah. On oh, I don't see it. I didn't it's, see it. It's, uh, it's on Netflix. I should check it out, Nick. It's really interesting. All right. We'll yeah. do. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Well, Sorry. Especially since you guys are like, we're into the penny stock thing. They talk a lot about how all these like Chinese uh, companies that are now U- that listed as U.S. companies are actually defrauding U.S. investors. Oh, they, yeah. That's coffee thing. Um, luck, at, luck and coffee was that first example from a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. 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 So he, they had all kinds of stuff like that happening with the smaller sort of penny stocks uh, that were listed as U.S. companies. So he, he was in um, this documentary called China Hustle, but I had met him long before that in Florida, actually randomly. Nice. Um, he has this, or had this really sweet, like four-story penthouse right on the beach in Fort Lauderdale. And there's this like restaurant right next to his place where I was eating breakfast with actually a friend of mine who I had come down to Florida with. And then my grandmother who lived there, and I, we were just having breakfast with her. Um, I heard this guy talking about stocks and going back to how I'm always like just basically interrupting people in whatever they're doing and asking them for, you know, trying to meet people all the time. But he was talking to somebody on the phone about stocks and I was trading penny stocks, whatever at that time. And so I heard him talking about some penny stock, whatever. And I was like, oh, are you, after he was done on the phone, I'm like, are you a stock market investor? And he's like, yeah, actually a little bit, but mainly my buddy Maj, who lives right next door, is invested in stocks and manages money for me, whatever, has this hedge fund. And we were just bullshitting about stocks. And then finally he's like, all right, do you want to come over and meet Maj? Um, he's just right next door. So I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? So I go and meet this guy and, you know, he's got this sweet, set up where he's literally has it's three monitors looking out at the beach. You know, he can literally walk out of his door. The dream um, setup, eh? Got four of his friends. That's awesome. They're all managing money together. Nice. Um, but I met him early on um, in Fort Lauderdale. And then later on had done some favors for him, kind of like helping him out with his group in his chat room. And then later on, he did a favor for me, which was introducing me to, to Ackman, basically setting up this meeting. I bought him dinner at this, uh, this place, Carmine's, but, Essentially, he set this whole thing up, and later on, you know, I didn't realize how he was able to set this up. It's essentially because he was doing research for a lot of these different funds, like even big, big large investment banks on the whole China thing, the whole like China hustle thingy. I realized that mainly from watching that that uh, documentary, they were doing research for all these different firms, and so he had the numbers of you know most of the large investors. On, on wall street but uh, yeah he's he's not like a major well-known fund manager but he's got a pretty really good niche that he's, he's kind of dominating so he so just to be so he was more like kind of like a research analyst who folk kind of sold his information yep exactly That's basically, right so that people would take his information and kind of amplify their own analysis based off what he would tell them exactly. and make their own decisions based on proactively on their funds and stuff like that exactly so he, yeah. he the introduction to, to ackman and then sort of um from there, you know, just able to sit down and ask enough questions in a few hour meeting that like, you know, it really gave me a good sense of things. So some of the takeaways from that was, you know, he said, if you want to make quick money, 
the only way to really do that, a couple ways to do that, but one of the major ways that people do that is to buy and sell an entire company or to be involved in that process of buying and selling an entire company. Hence why like a lot of the stuff that Ackman's done to make his fortune has been in activist deals where you know somebody was taking something over. Um, so that was one of the key takeaways and just in general, like the whole, the, and the amount of analysis that he does in his ideas, it's, it's, it's really spectacular. Um, or at least in a lot of his initial ideas, I feel like he's kind of taken a simpler approach over time and it's benefited him. But he's a very in detail, very in-depth um, person. He does a lot of research on, on his ideas. If you watch some of his, um, some of these videos of him pitching investors on some of his early day um, shorts or other positions, it's, I mean, it's spectacular just how smart and intelligent Ackman is and how well well, he can articulate these ideas to people. Yeah, I watched the uh, the Herbalife one. Um, obviously, that didn't pan out as, as he would have liked to in the long run. But um, yeah. when he was talking, giving that presentation, like it, you could tell he was just so into the details and like the fluidity of what he was presenting. It was it was actually convincing at the time, right? And I think yeah. you know, his point his point was obviously validated. The company, I think, right now, I think Herbalife is struggling. I haven't looked at that stock in particular, but you know it. Doesn't help when Carl Icahn is taking the long position of that company and trying yeah. to get Bill well, out, of, out of the market. What I've, I've learned, uh, more importantly, is you don't short anything when you have you know this long sustained bull market. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like yeah. shorting is probably the hardest thing to do to make money doing consistently. Um, I think the only time I would ever consider shorting specific things is when you have because the thing is the last bull market, the last couple of decades. If you look at it, we've never had really something fundamentally shake us at our very core. Never right. really. We always recovered, bounced back, little yeah. bandage here and there. Now with COVID, the economy is at a complete halt. Yeah. And when you have a complete halt, you start to see a lot of big gaps and a lot of differences between an old system versus a new, why we need more tech-based things, why we don't want this, why we don't want that. So now a lot of companies' short-term outlook and long-term outlook could actually become a big question mark. Because trends are changing. So many trends are changing. And it's this kind of like sparked a real ignition behind a lot of trends. Oh, I don't hear you. Uh, we lost him. You're on mute, Chris. <laughs> I gotta, we gotta unmute him. Uh, little tactical difficulty. There we go. You still there, Chris? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, we're, we're back. Good, we're we're back. Good. <laughs> All right. Um, no, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of things that you're seeing that are, that are, that are wrong right now for a lot of these companies. But, um, in general, I mean, it's, it's shorting is a really tough thing to do and that's yeah. why they make movies yeah. with the big short. And that's why you yeah. have articles written about people that made fortune shorting. You don't have a lot of articles about people that make fortunes going long. You don't have a movie called the big long, right? Because it's just like, that's how most people make their money. Um, it's still, I still, like, I personally don't get in the whole, I haven't, I haven't done the options route yet. Not because I don't want to, just because right now I'm focused on ensuring that I want to build my wealth. So I right. take a lot of the fundamental perspective because fundamentals are more likely to give you a strategy that is less focused on risk. Yeah, definitely. So for now, I'm, that is my primary attention, uh, attention, my brand, this podcast, meeting people, building my wealth. As I build later down the road, I obviously would like to learn just because it's a segment of the market. And because it's a segment of the market, understanding it 
can help me understand where short-term opportunities can occur to buy fundamental value stocks. Because Definitely. that's, you know. I feel, I feel like too, over time, as you start to, uh, you know, as you start to master these other asset classes, they can present really good ways to either like hedge your risk or to, yeah. kind of, um, yeah. to get a better risk versus reward. And a lot, so like sometimes there's, there are situations, for example, options can be good if you're on the other side of the option and you're actually offering somebody the ability to, let's just say, buy the stock yeah. and the ability um, to do that. That can be really good sometimes if you, um, you know, if you're already in and you want to lock in a certain gain already and say you've been holding a stock for a certain period of time, you want to lock in a certain gain. And if you, so if you're right and the stock keeps going down, you've already kind of insured yourself. Um, you know, that the, was, that was kind of, that was kind of why I said to myself, if I'm going to play that route, I would rather be on the other side, giving out positions that I'm right. fully loaded on this way. My downside is minimized. And I can make reoccurring cash flow off of positions that I hold. Yep. And that, that is how most, I would say that is how most people make money trading options on Wall Street. Like there are very few people that make money the way that I make money trading options. Um, and well, actually there's a lot of different ways that I make money trading options, but I'd say the main way that I make money playing options is very contrarian to how most people make money on Wall Street. Most of the ones that do very well, over time we're doing exactly what you're talking about. So I think that you kind of have, you're, you're going towards the right direction for sure. You know, um, and it really just depends on what your edge is and really where you fit in from a, a standpoint of other things in your portfolio. But yeah, I think you're, you're generally on the right. Generally. See, I've, I've always, I've always liked more of the percept. Like I've, I grew up on chess. So one thing I'll give it to my father is he taught me chess at a young game. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, Chess to me is kind of the way I look at the world because everything is a dynamic. It's, there's always pieces. You move this, you get in, you just screwed. You have to reshift your strategy. The outcome is where you're trying is the world. So your, 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 your opponent is everything that's trying to make you not succeed is your opponent. So a lot of these guys like acting them, I kind of look at them as like grandmasters, these guys who just grandmasters, they know everything. They've seen strategies a thousand fold. So they have so much compounded val uh, information in their brain that anything they see, they understand how to respond, adapt, evolve. Because information, as we now see, you know, data is now a new commodity. Data in your brain is just as valuable for an individual as data is important for a company. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so for me, the way I saw it was chess. Because I love chess so much and the, the the dynamic of chess and how you sit back and think and you you have to develop a formulation you have to think multiple steps ahead and ahead the way i looked at fundamentals especially looking at the market and the economy looking at global relationships politics uh human psychology all these factors are a variable that dictates how the market will move in the short term and in the long term mm -hmm. so for me I, I just like taking that seat approach. I sit back and I just watch everything. I, I, I consider myself more of an observer. Mm -hmm. So I don't look at graphs so much because I don't look at technical graphs as much in terms of just understanding more of an overall bottom or of an overall stock history movement in terms of the price in relation to the overall uh, market cap and it's P multiple to understand in terms of the fundamental valuation of the business. I am more of a person that just likes to watch things happen. And then I, so because I guide people and I have a, I have a, I have a wealth consulting business that I started, 
because of the fact that if you take the long position, you're less likely to risk your client's capital. Mm -hmm. So for that fundamental reason, a lot of the way I approach my knowledge building is to ensure that I have a strong understanding of the fundamentals and a long horizon. This way I can play the proper game for my clients because I don't want to risk their money short term. So for them, I have to ensure that my brain is on the same level with where I'm trying to bring their wealth. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, um, if I'm helping somebody else like to get into an idea or to get in, to something and to position themselves. I'm kind of thinking in a very similar way. Like I'm willing, a lot more willing to take more risk with my own investments than I am with other that's, people. That's, sure. That was one of the biggest reasons why people have asked me, says, why don't you start a fund or this or that? And I said, honestly, it's not that I don't want to. You know, the idea is cool. But then I said to myself, when I have money and I'm the one literally physically in control of it with my own finger, I feel like I have more psychology to overcome then when I have other people keep their money and I say to them, do this, do that. Why? Because now you know exactly what I'm thinking and you're literally going to do it and you're going to see whether or not I'm right. Right. So I'm more held accountable to what's happening in the world by you holding your money and me advising you rather than me taking your money, doing what I want to do. And then you're just finding out whenever I tell you, you made money. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, and going off of like kind of that topic of starting a fund, it's an interesting topic because a lot of people want to start funds. They watch yeah. shows like Billions. Like that's what I'm watching in the background. Yes. Yeah, it's a great uh, show. Coming up on, uh, we got the season five tomorrow, I think. Yeah. No, I, I, like, I actually love Billions because they actually take a lot of real life um, situations from actual like fund managers. And a lot of people think this is a loosely, a story loosely based on Steve Cohen. Um, I wouldn't yep. doubt that based on a lot of, you know, the things that I've heard about Steve Cohen. So, but they do take a lot of, a lot of things from real uh, situations in, in, in this business and what people that are managing money have gone through. So I do like that show for that reason, but it, it's, you know, things like that cause a lot of people to want to start funds and they think that, um, you know, starting a fund is an easy thing to do. It, it is an easy thing to do, but it's a hard thing to do well. Um, and if you want to do it well, you got to have the legal infrastructure in place. Yeah. That is going to be very, very expensive. Yeah. So it's an accounting nightmare, number one. When you think about all sorts of different people coming in at different dates and having, okay, so like who participated in games at this certain period of time, it's a hard thing to do. There are easy ways to do it, um, but in general, it's hard. And then really to make money, I think you've got to have a really clear advantage and a really differentiated type of investing. So when you look at most fund managers, um, when they're trying to pitch their clients, they're trying to offer something that they don't already have because most of the really sophisticated clients are doing what you call a fund to fund structure. So they're investing across many different funds that do many different things. So one might be a bond fund, one might be an equity fund, one might be you know, a commodity fund. Um, so like within equities, if you have somebody who's just buying just the average stock that everybody else is buying, then you're kind of being compared to the largest asset managers in the world. But if you're buying some very small segment of the market or you're doing some international arbitrage play that other people can't do, um, then you'll get assets under management um, if you are good at what you do and you have the right pedigree. But otherwise, you're being compared to like, you know, the Ray Dalios of the world or the Bill Ackman's of the world and the other fund managers that fund. Because if I'm 
um, an accredited investor and I can have access to almost anything, like I'm going for the best of the best. So it's very difficult for those like um, new fund managers to make headways in, in Wall Street and to build hedge funds. And the fees are obviously diminishing because um, most fund managers are underperforming the, the S&P and are underperforming other uh, similar funds. It's, so. it's, it's interesting too, because I know since this crisis started and I'm sure like I, I, when I'm working, I usually just have like CNBC in the background. Um, and Jim Cramer brought up something pretty interesting. He goes, passive investing is dead. It's all about active investing right now. Like this is the name of the game. Um, and when he said that, I was like, that is, that's like a pretty bold claim, right? Because to your point where you said, Hey, like active managers are actually underperforming the index. Now it's like the roles have reversed. I mean, if we look at the March returns for some of these portfolios now, they're probably like, you know, Ray Dalio's fund lost about, I think 15% or something like that. But you know, like is, is does Kramer have like, I just want to know what you think about that as a whole. And like, is active investing is active investing coming back as like a form that people I think it's never been dead, but my point is that there's only a very select few that are actually like realistically good active fund managers. There's a yeah. very, very select. And I think when you look within most professions, there's only a select few that are really good at anything. You know, when you even yeah. looking at doctors, like you think because somebody's a doctor that they are ultimately this super intelligent person. Yeah, you have to be intelligent to become a doctor. Does that mean that you're actually really good at what you do? No. Like, there's only a select few doctors that are actually very good at what they do. There's a lot of doctors that don't know the nutritional aspect or the working out aspect, but it's such an important aspect of keeping an overall health, but yet you don't know how to work out. You don't know the fundamentals of working out. You don't know dieting, proper dieting. So yes, exactly. I agree with you on that 100%. But another thing I would say is, what about the... Um, I would say is how do you define active also? Because I feel there's a spectrum to how you can define, there has to be a spectrum to how we define active investing. For example, Warren Buffett is not necessarily an active investor, but what I do agree, which is a smart thing that I kind of like from my approach is if you can never predict the upside, but you can always observe and see when the downside comes down. So when the down market comes, you can enter capital, let the market run. Every time there's a down, you enter. Every time there's a down, you enter or if ever you're looking for value gaps, but because then it becomes, then there's a question is I always buy at a bottom and I'll always sell the top, but then the top can continue. So you missed another high and then it can come back down. But then that bottom is now the previous high that you sold at. So you met like, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So by playing long, but buying always on lows can also help you be an act, a good active investor. Yeah. I think activists, I would define it as somebody who, um, you know, every so often they're they're forced to determine the positions that they want to take on rather than like automatically being generated by somebody else or being automatically generated by say whatever the index is in. Um, so you're selecting individual positions, you're rebalancing those positions at some point in time, whether it's every other quarter or every year. Um, either way, you're rebalancing those positions. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, I do. I do agree with that. That passive is in some ways dead, but there is a place for both in all strategies at once. Um, but going back to the original point, I when I look at fund managers and when I observe their returns over long periods of time, um, you see that very few of them are actually really worth their fees and worth what they do, um, and very few of them are actually very right about a lot of things over a long period of time. So. 
you know, I think most of the world's starting to realize that, especially whenever you talk about the bracket of high net worth individuals, they've been around the block many times. Uh, they've probably been with a few different asset managers, so they've already seen what they need to look at and what they need to, um, how they need to, how they need to judge these fund managers. One of the things that I do when I, um, so I work with people and teach them about, you know, trading, investing, whatever. One of the things that I do when I work with people to help them understand like how difficult it really is to manage a fund successfully and what it's like to, to be a fund manager. I have them look at the prospectuses that they um, use to pitch their clients. So you can go and get a, so a lot of the big funds, you won't be able to find anything, but you can find a prospectus on like a smaller fund and they'll show you like you know, these 50 page, 100 page documents that summarize their strategy, summarize their, how they tolerate risk. You know, they have all sorts of quantitative metrics that, um, they'll use to define their success. So it kind of shows you really what the sophisticated net worth individuals are looking at when they judge a fund manager. Um, and it's a lot more than just like, hey, I had 15, 20% returns last year. Or like, um, you know. Well, I think I think a lot of hedge, a lot, I think a lot of billionaires or high net worth individuals, a lot, a big aspect of their wealth is about sustaining my wealth and not necessarily about giving me high returns. Exactly. It's, can you Can you sustain it? Because if this is going to pass on to the next generation, the generation after, let's say it exists for a century. Well, I want you to make sure that you can, one, follow the inflation for a century. And two, can my, will my money still exist in a century from now or, or is it going to vanish? Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, that's exactly right. So, you know, one of the big things that you see that is a continual um, the only thing that fund managers will use to judge their success is like sharp ratio. Um, so that's basically like uh, yeah. risk adjusted returns. So it's the class, it's the classic metric too, that's being used, right? Yeah. For, for, for decades. You'll, you'll lose that. You'll learn that at the CFA exams and stuff like that. It's not something you really tend to see with retail investors, but like Lucas, one of our friends there. Right. Um, so that's a ratio he tends to focus on sometimes. Exactly. So, you know, looking at an optimized, like most investors are, at least the smart ones that have been in this game for long enough, um, they're, op they're trying to optimize for a certain sharp ratio while also trying to achieve a maximum drawdown of a certain percent. Um, so that kind of defines their risk and what success looks like a lot better. And so like most, the average retail investor, um, those that are even doing pretty well for what they consider pretty well for themselves, do not fit within um, the classification of good risk management for well wealthy individuals who know what they're doing and they're not going to be able to beat the, the some of these best fund managers so unless they have a really good arbitrage opportunity on something that nobody else is doing or they're just very good at that picking stock game and can do you know so there's there's not a lot of people that are that are that are in that category at all yeah uh, so so you, yeah go, go ahead I was just going to say, do you think, like when we look at the trends now, we look at the current market. One, we have to give it. Market is more volatile than it's ever been before. Two, we have far more retail investors because of access to your investment account through your phones and your computer. Compared to a, de a decade ago, the people didn't really do that. Now, look at millennials. Everybody wants to be their own investor. Everybody wants to be on the phone. If you were to look at the way funds well, let's don't look at the big funds. Let's look at current smaller funds, for example, for yourself, since that's going to be a competitive um, landscape factor. Do you think that the future outlook of where funds would be heading, especially on a smaller scale, do you think that they'll ever be able to attain a level 
like that of those large funds? Or do you think it's going to become more of a lot of smaller little funds with small little like niches and groups of individuals? I think both. If you're talking about like traditional just buying and selling stocks, money's going to go towards like, there's reason that people crowd into some of those more popular fund managers. Um, sometimes they get it wrong, but a lot of times they but, but before you continue that, the ones who do that, who crowd into those funds, are we talking usually about older people or younger people? I'd say both. I'd say it's, yeah. it's, it's less about an age thing. It's more about a net worth. Like, okay, if you yeah. have, um, so for example, a buddy of mine, Will Zomack, who works yeah. with Khalifa, he's the manager of Wiz Khalifa. He's um, the okay Taylor gang. His money is in Bridgewater. I mean, partially because his brother works there, but also because, you know, if you have, let's just say $30 million and, yeah. you know, you want to sustain that, you want to achieve maximum returns, you really want to, like, if I think, you know, if I, if I just look at, for, for example, what I do in some of my businesses, if I'm that busy in my business, I know, I know for a fact I can't spend time trying to manage my own money and doing it successfully, especially if I have, let's just say $30 million. So I think a lot of these people are not going to try to do that on their own yeah. with 100% of their capital. They might try to do it. I know he will take like a million dollars out of his money and mess around with it. But I think, you know, but that's that that, that that that's risk management though right like yeah. for example a million dollars for you know that particular investor if that's one percent of his capital you know he takes a small hit that's fine right and i think that's the other thing too now because you know we're seeing a lot of like nick said there's been a surge in sort of retail online traders you know robo advisors are coming on you know independent brokers are coming on like i can start trading from home anybody can really open a trading account but what that's doing is you're seeing a lot of people just want to get that home run right so like when you see that and i'm sure you have like some students that you kind of work with but when you see that like what's the one thing that you tell them to to, to really reinforce that hey you should be taking one percent risk like even if it's like a two thousand dollar account to start yeah so you know the problem is that a lot of the educational materials out there are very um, based around finding the idea rather than structuring the portfolio around that idea. Um, so there's like this very vague sense of risk management, right? Because people will say like, oh, don't put more than like five or 10% an idea, something like that. But they will never really give you mechanics of how to, and you get some of that, like you said, in the CFA and some other, uh, when you take some of those other, um, uh, try to get some of those other licenses, you do see some of those things surface, but it's, it's very vague. So one of the things that I always talk about is multi-strategy, um, having many different strategies work at once and going back to like having those super risky strategies. I do have those super risky strategies too. Everybody has them and they, you know, you've got to have them somewhere. I'm guilty. Yeah. But you, just, you do it with like a very small percentage of capital, right? So in general, you know, we kind of go through this process of defining, um, you know, sort of best case scenario, worst case scenario, portfolio structure around your best ideas, your worst ideas. So in general, like, so for example, we, um, we like to get to the point where you can have no more than 10% of your overall portfolio in options, right? Um, and then within options, I, I typically will have at least three or four ideas working at once that are that I'm looking to achieve by my, my uh, I'm trying to mess with my computer. Sorry about that, guys. 
But yeah, so I have those three or four main things that are driving the performance of, let's just say, the options portion of my portfolio. And then I'm trying to hedge that with, you know, a couple of other different positions, um, singularly at a time. So like within the options position, within the options portfolio, you know, that's only like 10% of my portfolio. And for a lot of people, that's not really doable because they think, you think about like the cost of one options contract, sometimes it's like a couple hundred bucks for just one contract. So if you're working with, let's just say $2,000, there's no way you're going to have an options contract that's only 10% of your overall portfolio that actually right. going to make you any money. Um, so get to the point where your portfolio could be large enough where you can split up risk in that way. And then, you know, try to, try to think about what's the most predictable things. So the most predictable things are usually cash flow earnings and those types of things over long periods of time. Um, the timing of when the markets are and the, when the positions are actually going to come around and, and trade the way that they should or trade the way that you expect, that is way less predictable. So that's why, you know, you only want to have a certain portion of your portfolio, very small fraction and ideas that are based around timing and, and trying to predict exact pricing. Cause I can tell you and look at an idea and say, okay, this is a good idea. It's undervalued. There is an opportunity there. I think I'm going to make around this amount but then I can just sit there and wait until it materializes. Sometimes I make more than I expect. Sometimes I make less than I expect. Um, it's a game of patience too, right? You kind of yeah. have, you kind of have to let, like you do your, you do your research, you do your due diligence, but you know, you'll see the market on an update and it's like, Oh my God, it's going up. And then like, you know, five days later, it's like back to where it was, you know, down 20 or 10%. Right. I've been, I've been guilty of that. I think we all have at some point. Right. Yeah, it's, and it's hard when the swings are so big. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, going back to kind of that point of how you structure the risk management. Um, there are, so, like, there's actual, like, math that I do to determine in the longer-term investments of how I want to structure things. And sort of the options trading, you know, there is a lot of sort of math and sort of things that you can model out to see how your, how your returns are going to unfold. But it's, it's not – it's not really easy to do with things that are so volatile, with things that are less volatile, with your, your names like Microsoft or Facebook or yeah, uh, maybe not so much Facebook, but like your Microsofts, your- Definitely Microsoft, yeah. Amazon is, Amazon is, you see like the ones that are heavily institutionally owned. Exactly. Just the ones that, you know, you have this continual trading behavior that is like- Very predictable. Variation, but it's very, it's very typical. It tends to have like this very typical average returns, average, expected losses so then you can model that you can actually go and say okay what would my portfolio look like if i invested this amount into this this amount into this this amount into this and this is portfolio one this is my first scenario second scenario is i invest x amount in this x amount in this x amount in this what is what are my you know expected returns what am i you know what's the sharp sharp ratio all that sort of stuff so then i'll like model out a bunch of different portfolios that can then give me my uh, preferred portfolio. So I set basically constraints. Like I was telling you before, I say, Hey, I want to make, um, you know, I want to have the best risk adjusted returns. I want to get this type of sharp ratio at least, but I want to only have maximum amount of drawdown of, let's just say 10% or 20%, whatever you set those constraints. And then whatever portfolio that makes the most amount of sense that kind of best has the risk constraints, best kind of fits within those risk constraints. Um, that's kind of how I determine 
portfolio uh, exposure and how much I want to have into any one idea with longer term investments with options trades. It's a lot, it's definitely a lot harder. Yeah. Um, Cause you can't time that, you know, yeah, you're, you and, and the thing, the thing with, the thing with options is you're fighting time decay, right. With most of them. Right. Yep. Yep. So you can kind of like within your options portfolio, you can do something similar, which is look at your expected returns over certain periods of time. Um, so like you can look at the, if you guys have ever taken a statistics class and you've looked at like the bell curve, um, yeah. you know, and trying to look at standard deviation and really where yeah, the wave, the wavelengths. Exactly. So basically looking at on average where the returns tend to fit within, and it's kind of the same thing within options, just harder to do in those shorter time frames. Um, cause you have a lot of dispersion in the shorter time frames, but you can look at what's the average and what's the expected and then try to look at the ones, whichever ones you feel are more predictable are going to be the options to trade that get a lot more of your exposure. All right. The ones where you can look at and say, okay, if I make this trade and buy these at the money call options, um, is this, you know, what is the likelihood that the price of this stock is actually going to reach this? Right. You know, and so whenever you see options that are just, you know, you have very high likelihood and expected um, anticipation of a stock reaching a certain price based on the history, and you think that the options are just way underpricing that, then those are the trades that are going to get a lot more of my capital and exposure within the options account. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, I tend like not to have any more than 10 or 20% of my overall portfolio within options. That's kind of just generally. Um, what I see for most people are most of professional and retail traders. Well, you're also, you're also trading volatility, right? The, the whole notion of options trading too, is you're, you're looking for that. And I know we're getting really technical here for, for most of our listeners. I, I find options so fascinating because of one, how they move and the upside potential. Um, but you obviously need to have a lot of experience, but it's interesting though that you say, Hey, like even the institutions, like 10% of their portfolio is maximum just options like that. That's, that's all that they should be doing, which, which is really interesting. Can you maybe just talk about, um, you know, one area where you look back, I don't want to call it a failure. Cause I don't think we look at failures as actual failures unless you give up, but something you look back on, it was like, you know, a really hard punch to the gut that you made like an investment decision. And you learned so you learned so much from it that you're just like, I'm so glad that that moment actually happened for you. Yeah. I'm kind of smiling right now. Just thinking about it. <laughs> I, 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 I think it, I think that smile happens to all of us. <laughs> Yeah, because what I'm thinking about is um, like, and it applies so much to what's happening right now. It, it, it's actually the perfect question. During those previous, um, you know, declines that we saw in the market from basically, let's just say, when I really started to get serious about portfolio management was around 2014, right? So from 2014 till now, there were quite a few sort of big market dips. Um, you had one in um, 2015 or 2016, if I recall. Uh, the flash crash, I think. Well, yeah, and there is basically based around the Fed raising interest rates, um, you know, coming out of the QE cycle. We were in the QE for so long that basically we wouldn't really know what it would look like coming out of that. So there was kind of this just like unexpected, um, you know, trades around sort of what the Fed did. And so there was that. And then there was uh, Brexit. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. And then Brexit. And then Uh, 2018 was like that big sell off at the end of the year. Exactly. So the, the first two or three that I mentioned, I was trying to short the market. I had come, basically, I, you know, I, I was educated 
to an extent, but not enough to know how foolish that was because I had tried to really understand economics and try to understand, you know, continually trying to understand what happened in 2008 and how that affects us now. And sort of what you see is that, um, yeah, there's a lot of long-term structural issues. We have all this debt that's overhanging in the world and, you know, we have um, lower growth as a result of this. And just in general, we're going to have a struggle getting back to normal rate. So that's going to eventually cause massive inflation. That's the devaluation of our currency. We also have a very weak, um, political financial governance. So our yeah. political system, even though it's huge, in terms of their financial governance is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just, we're in a very bad structural place right now. And I think the rest of the world is too. But um, when you start to look in deep, you start to get very kind of like, it's dark and you think, how is this, po how is it possible that we're even where we are right now? How can it keep going? Oh yeah, and you talk about, hey, every 10 years or so we see this huge, uh, market sell-off, whatever. You hear all these things going off in your head and those are what you frame your decisions around. And then you start to realize as you learn more and as you go through these things, how vicious the rebound can be and how wrong everybody can be when they try to sell these things off. Um, part of what's different this time around than in the past is, okay, the rest of the world is much weaker than the U.S. That was kind of different in 2008 because you did have pockets of strength versus now you don't really have too many pockets of strength. It's really the rest of the world is in a, is in a very strong or is in a very weak situation. Yeah, um, especially so that, Europe, right? Yes, so that creates relative strength. Not necessarily strength overall, but relative strength to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, um, and before I hopped on with you guys, I was talking with one of my students who's in, he lives in Spain. Um, you know, his dad started this, this biotech company, but essentially he's talk, we're talking about, you know, if you wanna have more foreign market exposure, that's fine. Um, because you know more about your home country and the laws, whatever. I try to stay out of U.S. non-U.S. markets because of laws and yeah. regulations that I don't quite understand. Um, but he was just saying how no, I want to stay focused on U.S. U.S. because that's where I see the most amount of opportunity. There's a lot of structural issues here, um, so a lot of investors across the world are thinking the same thing. And so money is just starting to pile and pile and pile into the U.S. markets. So, for example, you have all this wealth that's been created in China. A lot of the Chinese investors, um, these Chinese billionaires, they know that it's a house of cards. Yeah. And can, um, there's interviews. One of the guys that um, I don't know if you guys know who Kyle Bass is. No, not ringing no. a bell. No, maybe by face is he? Um... He has a he has a uh, group called Real Vision Finance, and they do they make all types of videos. Oh, real? That. Yes. Okay. So yeah. Exactly. Okay. No, I know Real Vision. So yeah. Yeah. So he made up his money um, in 2008 shorting basically the housing market he bet thought basically did what they did in the big short he was made the same exact trade maybe a little bit later or whatever but he made you know hundreds of millions of dollars off of that and um i know about him because of maj maj has done a video with one of the people on his in his group um somewhere but essentially he did a video with uh this chinese billionaire it essentially has been um um it's like China's biggest enemy right now because he's been talking about all the shit that's been happening in China and how the Chinese government is corrupt. You have a lot of these Chinese, you know, Chinese billionaires that are trying to get their money out of the U out of China, any way, shape or form. And where are they trying to go? They're trying to go to the U S to buy property and to buy equities. Um, and a lot of them are buying gold. They're, you know, they made it illegal to buy uh, certain amounts of gold in China because too many people are trying to convert their, their money into other forms of assets or other forms of currency. Um, so you're seeing this huge, over time, you've seen this huge surge of 
investors in the U.S. from foreign markets, but especially right now. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that is, has been propping up to the markets over the last few years or so. Um, and then just in general, I think that, like I said before, even whenever you see structural issues, you know, you, you, you tend not to really think about them until it's right up until that time that it actually matters. Whether that's elections or Brexit or whatever, people tend to ignore it until it really matters, until it either really impacts earnings or until the event actually happens. So a game of Jenga. Yeah. <laughs> so because, well, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to keep your money in cash and lose, you know, potential to make 20, 30% returns in a year or, you know, over the course of three, four years because of your bearish views? No, you're not. Most fund managers do not do that. So, um, yeah, in general, that's one of the reasons that the U.S. markets can keep going a lot higher. So my biggest mistake was trying to short the market. Um, you know, you, it just doesn't, it doesn't really make sense in general when you look at the, the history of the markets across any period of time. It doesn't really make sense to be a big shorter over long periods of time. Um, you know, and just thinking that it would go – maybe shorting is okay, right? But you have to short really for a very, very, very – brief period of time. It cannot be a long thing. You, you need a, you need a good strategy for that. And I think you need a specific time frame, right? It's right. not like a long-term investor. It's like, Hey, let me buy Apple or Microsoft stock. Yeah. Let me just hold that forever. You know, like that's, that's really long-term, but when you're shorting the market, you got to understand basically what's happening fundamentally. I'll be honest. Like, I think Chris, you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago when the market was down, I was trying to short the market and I got burned because the fed kept adding, you know, liquidity to the market. And the first thing you told me was, don't ever short the market, right? Don't ever fight the Fed. It's a lesson that I'll learn and it's, it's going to be with me, you know, forever. I mean, that's my biggest losses, man. I, was, I just had a bad taste in my mouth from those last two times around. And then 2018, um, I knew that there was going to be a rebound. I just didn't know that it was going to be so fast and vicious. So I right. a lot of that move. And so this time around, it was like, I thought that it was going to be a repeat of 2018 action where you have that fast, vicious sort of rebound. Which, which, we, we, we kind of did, you know, like April, but, yeah. April was a great month, apparently for stocks, even though record, record unemployment, record job losses and stuff. So, well, and what I think is that um, whenever you talk about a fundamental idea, at first it starts with a fundamental idea that you can see there's a clear push in a certain direction. And then at some point that move needs to be quantified, right? So at yeah. some point it becomes less about the fundamental idea and then more about mean reversion, right? Yeah. How things have to snap back to, and that's not even really about what's happening fundamentally as much as it is how markets behave and the structure of how, you know, you cannot be, everybody cannot be a seller. Everybody cannot be a buyer. There has to be two sides of that trade. So you're going to see those two sides reflected in that back and forth movement, even if there's that clear overall direction in the long run. I had a, um, so I developed like sort of like a theory, like a bit by bit pieces were starting to build up. But just a couple of days ago, I built up a little theory in terms of how I think that there's going to be a decoupling in the sectors and the overall market. We're going to see old industries like uh, manufacturing and industrial heavy labor, high margin industries, uh, sorry, low margin. Low industries, margin. Yeah. yeah. Where they're going to stagnate and go down over time oil as well and then you're going to have more tech-based infrastructure industries start seeing higher growth returns in the long term because we're transitioning we're going from an old system to a new system the biggest companies bouncing back are big tech companies telemedicine has ripped it been doing so well since all this happening mm -hmm. 
So that was yeah. one of my thesis where for my long strategy for the next bull case scenario, in my mind, I'm going to myself, I will focus more on infrastructure, commodities, um, supply chain, tech, telemedicine, stuff like that. And in and old manufacturing, old infrastructure businesses, uh, old commodities that don't really have a play in the future outlook of a tech economy. Those are the ones that I'm starting to going to leave behind. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And so sometimes, you know, there's that, and the, that's a good example of a value trap. A lot of the older names were like, yeah, on paper, they're yeah. worth more, they're worth less than what they should be worth. If you take last year's earnings yeah. or current year, point, current moment yeah. point, you yeah. take whatever the current is and you, you, you basically model that out to the future. If yeah. that's your expectation, then yeah, they look cheap. But if you look at the, the equation where, um, you're going to have less actual earnings over a certain period of time and less revenue growth, then the value is not as, as apparent, right? So there, there are those value traps. And then you have other areas where, you know, the, the, the names that have not, sh should not have sold off or sold off way too much um, where they have very strong balance sheets. And just in yep. general, um, you can see that there's going to be that continued growth and maybe there's some disruption in growth right now, that continued growth. Um, so yeah, there's, there are a lot of, there's a lot of value out there, but there's also a lot of value traps. And then there are things that are a little bit expensive that I don't mind paying a little bit more for um, because of the flight to safety, right? Where's the, what would you, like right now, what's your, if you were to, if you were going to enter or do something, what's your perspective on the market? Like, what are you going to do right now? What's your strategy moving forward? Strategy moving forward. So right now, um, you know, if you're, if you're not already long, it's not a good time to start getting mm -hmm. long. Right. Agreed. You definitely. Are they going to have to miss out or wait for some sort of pullback yeah. or trench um, a bit? Yeah. And that's the tough thing about these markets and why I had to be so aggressive whenever we were much lower, because then when you look back and you say, okay, we're what 20% off of those lows. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, even if we get a 10% pullback, I still get 10% better pricing. Then yeah, like if, if I were to enter the market, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of these names, I'm not going to stop owning them you know, because we get a 10% pullback, if we get a 10% pullback, or even if we get maybe even a 15% pullback, some of them I've already trimmed and sort of gotten out of. Um, so essentially, I think we're going to see a lot more range bound, um, maybe not necessarily range between where we are now and our lows, but I think more so a range between maybe the midpoint of where we are now and our lows, and we start to see some range there before going higher. The markets are going to start to realize that, hey, Yes, there are industries that are going to not be around or not be in the same position that they are. Other industries yeah. are going to go right back to normal in maybe six yeah. months or a year. So let's just, let's just take six months or a year of earnings, just pretend like it doesn't exist. There's nothing there. And yet we're still, we, we still want to own these names and we'll still pay up for them. Why? Because what is one year of earnings in any really good company? You're not going to value one year of earnings very high. You're only going to, that's only going to be a fraction of your valuation. So let's just forget about the fact that they're just a, complete year that's just gone to shit yeah you know these companies and let's look and see what can come next uh, so there's names like that um we still do see some of those some of those um abilities to make money i don't want to go after anything where i have to think really hard and yeah. cannot really see a clear outcome so yeah. oil is an example of that you got to think super hard about yeah. what it is and yet no matter how hard you think it's probably going to be wrong no matter what so why even try to and renewable is a huge substitute that's becoming a growing trend. 
Yep. Yeah, and then just in general, there's just that manipulation in the short term that just negates any sort of fundamentals. It doesn't matter. It's like it's it's yeah. just all about like whatever manipulation takes place in the short yeah. term. So like, why do I even try to think about that when I could be focused in things like you know clear winners that just are like semi undervalued. I don't need for them to go up a tremendous amount with the options that I'm so options. The reason I like options um, because you have more liquidity. Yeah. As far as like, okay, it's not easier to get in and out of an options trade, but you have less capital. So therefore your portfolio is more liquid because you can do more with less. So I can take smaller bets and achieve higher returns. And so therefore if I'm wrong, I don't have to worry as much. Exactly. Um, because well, it's, it's also like when you put an options bet, for example, on an earnings play, um, you're just losing the premium and that you're risking like 1%. And if let's say you only lose about 50% of that 1%, it's still a small, it's like a bee sting at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So, so there, there are some names that have not really recovered that well. So some of those, most of those are shit, right? And they're not going to do, they're not going to do that much better. No. Um, they might come back a little bit, but it's just going to be simple like sort of mean reversion without any sort of real fundamental underlying reason to support that. So you're going to find like maybe a handful of those types of companies out there. Those are the ones that you can still buy regardless of the fact that the overall markets have bounced a lot. Um, but those are hard to find. You'll find a few of those. Um, so in general, I'm taking a lot of cash off of the table. Like I'm taking a lot of the positions and that I was buying a month ago because the markets have moved so much. It doesn't even matter. That's only been a month. I've achieved returns that I've yep. in a year. So I'm trimming some of those positions to give me more cash so that if things come back down, I have opportunity to buy lower if need be, or buy some of the opportunities that I didn't see before. Um, and then I'm going to trade options sort of around just those average, you know, um, everyday moves. Right. So if yeah. I'm seeing that within the week, you know, if you get two or three days in a row that the markets like to go up, and then one day it'll come down. It'll come, so I can just measure those moves a little bit and trade around those measured moves um, while also doing sort of the long-term thing. So I'm doing those multi-strategies at once. But just in general, you got to hang out more around here. you got to be a little bit more patient. Uh, if you're buying something, you got to – yeah, you've got to just take smaller positions than what you would have liked to before. Well, I think we're – Nick and I, and I think you can kind of agree to this. I think in the long term, the market will definitely rebound. The stock market is the greatest wealth machine uh, in the world. You just got to, like you said, and it, it's just interesting to hear sort of your perspective and like how you basically built, you know, a really good portfolio now. And like you're – you have that, you know, you've put in the time, you've put in the hours. So, man, like we love the fact that you – and again, we're really appreciative that you came on today. Um, keep up the good work. We're definitely going to be, you know, looking out for you as well. Where, where can the listeners find you, Chris? Yeah. So main thing is like Instagram. I keep in contact with people continually on Instagram, like daily, pretty much. Love it. So my I'll, add you, I'll, I'll add you right now. Yeah. Yeah. So my Instagram <laughs> is Stanford underscore one. Um, so that's, yeah, you can find me on Instagram and then I have a website as well for like people that are interested in learning. It's myalphalens.com. So you can go and learn a, bit, a little bit more about my courses or a little bit more about me and um, Facebook as well. So you can follow me on Facebook. I have my name abbreviated so people can find me easier. It's Chris Stan because um, there's a lot of Chris Stanford's out there. So you can find me easier on Facebook. Yeah, there he is, man. Well, look, Chris, really appreciate it, man. Uh, keep it up. 
I'm honest. I've, I've been following you for about two years. I love the work that you're putting in. Nick's going to start following you right now. Cool, we're definitely to get all of our listeners to start following you too. So, well, yeah. uh, we're going to have to collaborate on another uh, theme. Awesome. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I'll share some like research and stuff with you guys. I have, uh, I'm starting to get more of my buddies that work in finance. My first, one of my first uh, students, Steven, is working at Credit Suisse right now. He's doing nice. a lot of research for me. And then he's got a couple of his buddies that are coming on. And my buddy, one of my buddies, uh, Bennett, who works at Goldman. And he's got some of his other, uh, his roommate as well, that they're all going to start contributing research on my platform. So we'll share, cool. I'll share some of that with you guys. Cool. Uh, that's I'm awesome. getting, I just, I just got into, uh, cause usually most of the time research was always done just in my head and never actually physically yeah. wrote it out. So since me and Dan started this, I started got into like blog writing and actually like analyzing, but not necessarily financials per se, more like trends and fundamental mic macro movements on a global scale, which kind of puts your long strategy into perspective or how to hedge your short-term plays with long-term positions, stuff like that. Right. No, awesome. All right, guys. We'll, yeah. we'll definitely chat more about uh, ideas and just trying to do this again. So I appreciate you guys having me on here. Absolutely, man. Stay appreciate safe it. again, eh? Thanks yeah, for thank coming you. on. All right, boys. All right. Take Ciao. care.